Welcome to theories of the third kind. Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. My name is Aaron, and I am one of your hosts. The other hosts joining me today are Danielson and Caleb. Now, before we start today's episode, I want to state that no AI programs were used or harmed in the creation of this episode. The research for this show and all of its work was created solely by humans. If you would like to support the show, then there are a few ways you can do that. One of the ways is through Patreon. Each week, we release a Patreon-exclusive episode that only Patreon supporters can get access to. To sign up, it's only $5 a month, which is only 16 cents a day. Not only do you get an extra episode per week for that $5, but you also get access to our entire back catalog of past Patreon episodes. In total, we have over 169 extra Patreon episodes, which is a lot of extra hours for your listening pleasure. To see the full list of Patreon episodes, Go to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, and click on the Patreon Episodes tab, and there you will see an entire list of Patreon-exclusive episodes that we have published. Also, today we added another Patreon-exclusive episode, which is over the mysterious ancient ruins of Teotihuacan. So, you get access to that episode, as well as all the others, for just five bucks. Now, if you can't afford a Patreon membership, but you still would like to help us out, then feel free to leave us a written review on iTunes or on Spotify, and that helps us out more than you know. However, don't feel pressure to leave us one. If you don't want to, then that's fine. We just want you guys, girls, aliens, reptilians, Bigfoot, Sasquatches, Chupacabras, ghosts, Illuminati members, underground lizard people, whoever or whatever you are, to enjoy the show. And real quick, if you're not already, go follow our Instagram and YouTube channels to stay up to date on all announcements, news, and updates. And that is the end of the announcements. So today's episode is over the Nazca Lines. So how today's episode will go is that we're going to talk about what are the Nazca Lines, and then we'll go into strange facts and findings where we talk about the Nazca people, as well as some rituals that those individuals conducted and many other weird things. And then we'll go into theories, and then of course wrap everything up with our own personal thoughts and theories. So with that being said, let's get into today's episode. In the remote desert of Peru, a mysterious enigma spans across time. Sprawling geometric shapes etched into the desert floor by an ancient civilization defy explanation. Some call it a celestial map, a sacred pathway, an extraterrestrial message, or perhaps an ancient astronomical observatory. Do these lines bear the wisdom of a lost civilization, waiting for us to decipher their cryptic messages? Or are they a testament to the existence of beings beyond our world? In this mysterious landscape, we are left to delve deep into the depths of history, seeking to unveil the ancient secrets woven into the very fabric of our world. This is the Nazca Lines. All right. Some of you may not know this, but November of last year of 2022, I went to Los Angeles and filmed for the History Channel for the show History's Greatest Mysteries. And I am featured on season four, episode 19 which is over the Nazca Lines. Now, if you want to, you can go watch it. But the History Channel put it behind a $2.99 paywall. And due to that, we are going to give you the episode here for free. Yeah. <laughs> in our own words, okay? So that is why we are covering this topic today. And to start this entire episode off, we're going to first discuss what these Nazca Lines are. So, Dan. Can you start that off for us? When you think of Peru and ancient civilizations, most people automatically imagine the famous Inca Empire. 
and of course the most visited tourist destination in Peru, Machu Picchu. However, not many people are aware of the massive mysterious geoglyphs that were created in Peru, way before the Inca civilization. These enormous geoglyphs are called the Nazca Lines and are located in the harsh desert of Peru, around 250 miles south of Lima. These lines cover an area of nearly a thousand square kilometers and consist of about 300 different carvings of figures, including animals, plants, and odd-looking astronaut-looking alien figures, which stretch more than nine kilometers in length. Now, to fully understand what these lines are, we have to go back in history and talk about when they were discovered. So all the way back in the early 1500s, travelers in the area stumbled upon grooves in the desert ground that went on for miles. Now, for hundreds of years, these travelers just walked along those grooves, assuming that they were, you know, remnants of ancient roads from past civilizations. They really didn't think much of it. However, that all changed. Fast forward to the year 1927. A Peruvian archaeologist named Toribio Espy was traveling in the area and started making his way up a series of nearby hills. As he was walking, the archaeologist glanced down to the valley below. It was at this moment that he noticed something quite odd. The grooves that were in the desert below, that many individuals assumed were the ruins of ancient roads, were in fact not roads at all. They were actually hundreds of massive images and symbols that were carved into the earth and were enormous in size, some reaching miles in length. After the discovery of these formations, for the past almost 100 years, archaeologists and scientists from all around the world have been studying them. What they have discovered is that there are three basic types of Nazca lines. You have the straight lines, the geometric designs, and the pictorial representations. In total, there are more than 800 straight lines in the area, some of which are 30 miles long. There are also over 300 geometric designs, which include basic shapes such as triangles, squares, and trapezoids, as well as wavy lines, arrows, and zigzags. The Nazca lines also include representations of about 70 animals and plants, some of which measure up to 1,200 feet long. Examples include a hummingbird, which was 165 feet long, a pelican, 935 feet long, a monkey, which was up to 890 feet long, which is the equivalent to two and a half football fields. God dang. There's a killer whale that's 210 feet long and a spider that's 150 feet long. There's also other interpretations of flowers, trees, and other plants. Now, we do have some photographs taken from above that show some of these animals and plants that are in the ground. I have no idea how they created these, but those are definitely, I mean, animals and plants and other various things. Quite amazing how accurate they are, too. The most interesting one to me is that hummingbird, the straightness of the lines and how they're all parallel. Wait, which one is the hummingbird? That one right there. How the heck is that a hummingbird? That looks like a fork with a comb on the side of it. <laughs> kind of does. <laughs> oh, 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 okay. That, that long thing is its beak? Right. Okay, I see the hummingbird now. So if uh, anyone wants to go take a look at these photographs, we'll have them on our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com. You can go there, click on today's episode, and every single photograph that we reference today will be there for you to take a look at. Very strange, especially that alien or astronaut at the very bottom. It reminds me of that Squidward painting. <laughs> it does look like that Squidward painting. All right, so after the discovery of these geoglyphs, anthropologists began studying the area to try and figure out who created these lines and why. They discovered that they were likely created by an indigenous group of individuals known as the Nazca people that flourished in the area from 200 BCE to around 600 CE. As of today, in 2023, archaeologists are still studying the lines and making additional discoveries. For example, in 2011, a Japanese team discovered a new geoglyph that appears to represent someone being decapitated which, at about 14 feet long and 10 feet wide, it's far smaller than other Nazca figures and not easily seen from an aerial view. In 2016, the same team found another geoglyph, this time one that depicts a 98-foot-long mythical creature with many legs. Then, in 2018, 
Peruvian archaeologists announced that they had discovered more than 50 new geoglyphs in the region, using drone technology to map the area. Even with this new technology and discoveries, one main question remains, which is why? Why were these lines created by this ancient culture? Now, there is a common belief that these lines in the ground were created by the Nazca people as sort of a ritual to appease their deities so that they would send them rain. Another common belief is that the Nazca people created these lines as sort of an astronomical calendar for them to keep track of certain events, or that maybe it was some type of ancient irrigation system. However, some believe these lines were not created by the Nazca people, but in fact were created by extraterrestrials as a star map pointing to where they lived. But those are all just theories, and we're going to save them for our theory section. Now, before we get into that, we got to dive into some strange facts and findings that we discovered while looking into this subject. So, Dan, can you start that off for us? Our first strange fact and finding is over the Nazca people. So, like we mentioned earlier, they were an indigenous group of people that flourished on what is now present-day Peru from 200 BCE to around 600 CE. They weren't ruled or controlled by one elite person. They were organized into chiefdoms, with each one having a local leader who would be responsible for their group. The Nazca people, even though separated into different groups, all had a common culture and religion that helped bind the groups together. This benefited all of them with each group always helping each other out in their time of need. They did have levels of social standing. The elite class would consist of the chiefs, priests, and some other high-ranking people in the group. Then you would have the commoners. The commoners, of course, made up most of the population, and they were the backbone of the everyday work for the community. The Nazca people were primarily farmers with some artisans, and some of their crops consisted of corn, squash, sweet potatoes, beans, and even peanuts. That was mostly their food supply, other than some fish, dogs, and some llamas which they used their wool and meat. They pretty much used anything they could get their hands on. So yeah, yeah, a dog that roamed by, they were going to snatch it up and just... Harp. Caleb just gave me an evil eye. <laughs> it's like, did you eat dog? <laughs> Here's the thing, though, man. If you're in the desert and you don't have much food, if I see a little chihuahua... That still ain't much food. I mean, I know that's not much food, but I mean, like, any dogs. At that point, I mean... What's the difference between a dog and a hyena? Not much. If you're trying to survive out there, you got to eat what you can eat. You know what I mean? So I know that we easily pass judgment on these people, but back then, things were different, you know? Exactly right. If you don't have anything to eat, whatever's in front of you looks appetizing at that point. So uh, what else did they grow besides corn and squash and sweet potato? Did they grow any like materials or anything? They grew cotton, cocoa, gourds, and San Pedro cactuses. Cotton was primarily used for their textiles. The environment that they lived in only allowed these types of crops to grow, considering it was mostly desert and they didn't get a lot of rainfall. In fact, when it did rain, it would only rain for about 20 minutes, then that was it. They would get an average of 5 milliliters of rain per year, so they needed crops that were drought resistant. That's not a lot of rain. No, it's not. The Nazca people had to find ways to conserve water and still irrigate their crops to survive. With them having the shortage of water, they became pretty good engineers and architects. Underground, there were aquifers, a layer of water mixed with permeable rock, sand, etc. Of course, they could build wells to reach that groundwater, but that would take them a long time and it would just, you know, exhaust them because they would have to be pulling up buckets of water to water their crops. So they decided to build large irrigation systems to bring groundwater to their crops because the rivers they did have above ground had little to no water at all. These irrigation systems included underground aqueducts called poquillos. These poquillos were made of stone and clay, and they would help carry groundwater from the mountains to the Nazca valleys where they did most of their farming. The Nazca people also built terraces to collect rainwater for when it did rain and prevent erosion. Now, like we said earlier, they were artisans as well. They produced a wide variety of goods, which included textiles, jewelry, and pottery. A lot of pottery. They were very artistic, and their pottery showed it. They had very colorful and beautiful designs on them. Not only were their pottery used for everyday needs, 
but a lot of them were used for ceremonial purposes. They had one of these pottery jars that they called a head jar. Now, the most common thought for what these were used for was to be filled in for bodies that didn't have a head due to losing them in battle. So if you went to battle, get your head chopped off, don't worry. You're still going to have a head in the afterlife, but it's going to be made of a clay pot, you know? You're going to look like a nutcracker. <laughs> That's what that picture is. Exactly was. what it looks like. So yeah, we have a photograph of one of these head jars. We'll have it on our website, but Caleb's exactly right. It looks like a nutcracker. And just a little side note, but the Nazca people were known to collect trophy heads. And uh, research in 2009 revealed that the majority of their trophy skulls came from people of their own population. I wonder if it was more like criminals or the social outcasts that they would do that to. I think it's more so like, have you ever seen the movie Tropic Thunder? Yes. You know when they're in the uh, forest and they don't know that it's not being filmed anymore and the producer steps on a landmine and his head gets blown off and then Ben Stiller sticks his head on a machine gun and starts talking with it? I think that's what they did. You know, the person dies, they chop their head off and they stick it on a stick and start talking to people. They bounce it up and down and the jaw opens up. Hey, what are you doing over there? So they were a bunch of ventriloquists? I don't know what they did with the trophy skulls. They did have some other weird designs, didn't they? Yeah, the other designs that the Nazca people would make on pottery often depicted a supernatural type being with animalistic features, most commonly with a feline head and pulse. Archaeologists refer to this as the anthropomorphic mythical being which some believe was a priest, shaman, or dancers dressed as this being. Which we do have a little image of it. It looks weird. It looks like something you'd see when you're tripping on DMT, you know, dimethyltryptamine. It's kind of like a cat with a lot of eyes, but they aren't eyes. They're like uh, jewelry accessories. You know what it kind of reminds me of? You know, like in Asia, they have like those festivals and they have people like underneath the dragon things and they're running around through the streets. That's what it looks like. It does. So what else did they have for designs? They also had designs of a killer whale. This could have been one of their gods they believed in, this one being a water god. The whale deity would usually be drawn on the pottery with knives or holding a decapitated head. I didn't even notice it was holding a decapitated head till you said it. And that doesn't look like a killer whale. That looks, that looks like something completely different. That looks like a chupacabra. I mean, why did they draw this on the pottery to begin with? I mean, I understand it's a water god, but what did it do exactly for them? So with this one specifically, it's believed that this deity helped control the water cycle between the rains, rivers, and other things having to do with water. Which doesn't seem like he did that good of a job with the rain, just saying. <laughs> Not at all. Five milliliters a year? For like 20 minutes at a time? Yeah. The Nazca have other animal-like creatures on their pottery as well. Some look like birds, cats, and serpents, which were accompanied by plants on them as well. Which, I mean, they had the possibility of, you know, meaning that they had something to do with the agricultural stuff, right? Like, hey, if I draw this uh, cat with a plant, we're going to have a good harvest of corn this year. So, something like that. It was pretty much to appease the gods. And another thing they did uh, was sacrifices. This played a huge role, especially at Kuwachi. Uh, they would sacrifice pieces of pottery, guinea pigs, llamas, and even people. Just a FYI, if you don't know what Kuwachi is, it's okay, because we're going to dive deeper into it later on. But before we do, let's talk about our next strange fact and finding, which is about trophy heads that we mentioned earlier. All right, so just like Aaron mentioned in our previous Strange Fact and Finding, we mentioned a trophy head that was used during a sacrificial ritual. So we decided to ask ourselves, why did they take trophy heads and was it just for ritual purposes? It has been questioned by scholars why the Nazca people were so aggressive. Some speculate this would be due to them being constantly at war over rights to water, land, and other resources. Others suggest that the warfare was strictly ritual carried out simply to collect heads for ritual sacrifice of victims after being captured. Another debate between scholars is what this pottery has drawn on it. What did these Nazca people draw? Some state like, hey, these figures on it, they're just, you know, hunters. While others state, no, these are not hunters on this pottery piece. These are more likely warriors because as you can see, they got spears and they're carrying some decapitated heads. 
So that's another debate that's going on. But to me, in my opinion, when looking at this photograph we have here, uh, that definitely looks like a warrior carrying a severed head. And why does the big statue have the same face as the uh, head? I just realized what that is. That's not a statue. That's a hot dog. That's a decapitated head on there bleeding down. Oh, shit. I mean, it does look like a hot dog with it. <laughs> looks like a hot dog, but yeah, that's a decapitated head bleeding down. Damn. Now I see a hot dog. That's all I see. That's all I see now, too. So needless to say, they had a thing for decapitating heads, whether they were captured victims or their own people. Then we learned that in Peru, there were only two cultures that used heads in their rituals, the Paracas and the Nazca. For example, throughout the Nazca region, there have been multiple archaeological digs where they have uncovered over 100 mummified trophy heads. All of the heads were created and preserved in the same manner. The head was cut from the body with a sharp object. Then, the base of the skull and parts of the occipital bone were broken away, which evidence shows this was done with a club or an object like one. Then, the brain and eyes were removed through this opening, and a hole was punched or drilled through the center of the forehead. This would be the spot where they would insert a carrying rope with a wooden toggle inside to secure it. Finally, the lips would be sewed shut using long thorns from the local Warengo tree. Then they would stuff the skull cavity with either cloth or sometimes vegetable matter, like corn or cactus skin. The biggest cache of trophy heads that were found was 48 of them at one time in the Palpa Valley in the Rio Grande de Nazca drainage, which we have a couple images. Dude, those look terrifying. Yeah, we got a couple images also of those heads. They look like shrunken heads, do they not? They kind of do. And why does that one have red hair? Did they have gingers back then in the Nazca people? So I know that, well, I don't know. I think I've heard it that if they rubbed clay in their hair, it kind of like a hair dye. That makes sense. All right. So like we said, if you want to see those photographs, just head to our website and we'll have them posted up. All right. So let's move on to our next strange fact and finding. This next strange fact and finding is about one of the crops that the Nazca people grew and used, the San Pedro cactus. This cactus is massive and can reach up to six meters in height. The San Pedro cactus naturally grows in the Andean mountains, and they look like your typical cactus that you will see on the side of the road. Now, the one thing that makes this cactus so popular with the Nazca people and others, especially, you know, their healers and shamans, would be the large quantity of mescaline that is found within it. So what is mescaline? Well, it's a naturally occurring hallucinogenic compound that is found in many species, which include the Peruvian and Bolivian torch cacti, but the most popular one being peyote. You ever tripped on peyote? No. I want to go have a guided trip so bad. You going to join me? Yeah, absolutely. If, uh, if anyone that's listening to this knows where we can have a guided peyote trip, and I'm not just talking about, hey, my name's Ed. I got a ranch down in Mexico. We can go down there and take some peyote. No. Okay. We want a legit place. All right. I'm in agreement with that. Send us an email. We'd, uh, we'd love to meet up with you. So what would happen if I consume this San Pedro cacti? Well, if you consume the San Pedro cacti, it will produce a strong psychedelic experience but it is much, much less intense than the other natural hallucinogens such as psilocybin, peyote, and ayahuasca. When you take this, most people say you go through a bout of nausea, but then soon after, your psychedelic trip begins. One minute you're thinking you're going to vomit, and the next thing you know, you're staring at trees that are shimmering for half an hour, not really knowing that your trip has started. Your senses are heightened, colors become more vivid, patterns are easily spotted, Sounds are more obvious, but not intrusive. Some people even say that they report seeing auras around people, plants, and animals. So what was this San Pedro cactus used for? Well, prior research had shown that the Inca gave ayahuasca to people who were to be sacrificed. And this was likely to keep them calm before they got their freaking heads chopped off. Which, if I was going to get mine chopped off, hell yeah, give me as much ayahuasca as I can have. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Now, a lot of researchers started looking into, you know, if the Nazca people had done the same thing, in which they had found evidence of chemicals from this San Pedro cactus in the hair of one of the trophy heads. 
This finding marked the first time that evidence had been found of Nazca sacrificial victims being given this hallucinogenic before death. So likely, if you were going to die, they're going to say, hey, come take this uh, cactus over here. Chew on it a little bit. Oh, okay, you're feeling good. You're tripping. Off with his head. Ciao. You're just thinking, oh, hell yeah, we're about to go on a trip. Next thing you know, boom, your head's being cut off. That sucks. <laughs> you know, there's reports that after your head's cut off, you have a good, I think, like eight seconds of brain time still. And then after that, it's done. So you're aware of your head being cut off. Do you think them being on this hallucinogenic would extend that time? Like to you, it would seem like a long time. Seems like it would last longer and you'd be like, oh, shit. I don't know. I've never done cactus, this San Pedro cactus before. So I don't know. The more I'm thinking about it, they probably viewed this substance as like a holy substance, right? You probably had a lot of people volunteering to be sacrificed. Because if that state puts you in a state of like bliss almost and consciousness with a higher being, there was probably a lot of people that wanted to do that and felt that it would be honorable in the Lord's eyes or whoever they believed in. You're probably 100% right. It reminds me of a video I watched of ISIS. There were, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Hold on. Let, let me explain. Hold on. Let me, ex I'm not comparing the Nazca people to ISIS, but in the terms of belief and sacrifices, it was a video I watched. I think it was like a vice documentary and there was a bunch of young ISIS warriors and they had this giant truck filled with know, like some bomb substance or something. And they picked straws to see who was going to be the one that would drive the truck and, of course, run it into this compound, and they would be the suicide bomber. One of the young ones actually picked the smallest straw, and, you know, I expected him to be bummed about it, but he wasn't. He was happy. He was psyched, because in his mind, according to his beliefs, he was going to go and see Allah, and everybody was, you know, congratulating him and all that stuff. So that's what it kind of reminds me of, and I bet you're right. It probably did have a lot to do with doing the honorable thing because probably one of the reasons they did the uh, sacrifice ritual was for rain, water. And they're just like, hey, man, you sacrifice yourself for the people. Come on. We need water. You'd be a hero. How many more damn people got sacrificed for fucking rain? They go through the year and only get like another quarter of an inch. Fucking Raphael, you weren't worth a goddamn. <laughs> That's why they keep their head. Oh, man. Uh, all right, so let's get on to our next strange fact and finding. All right, so our next strange fact and finding is about Coachi, which is located in the coastal area of the Central Andes Mountains in Peru. Coachi was a religious site where Nazca people often carried their dead to so they could bury them there. This place was one of the most important sacred sites the Nazca people had. The site is made up of a series of massive ceremonial mounds and plazas and used for harvest festivals, ancestor worship, and burials. The only buildings that can be found at the site appear to have been used as storage and workshops. These would have been used in relation to the religious activities being carried out at the site. The remains of wooden posts were found at the site, as well as holes in the floors of the plazas, indicating that huge canopies were erected to keep worshippers cool and dry. By far the most impressive feature at Kawachi is the collection of 40 burial mounds. The earliest mounds have been dated to around 100 BC, while the last edition seems to have been around 550 AD. This fits the general period that the Nazca civilization were active. The mounds were used for burials for family and kin groups. Each mound contains the tombs of specific groups. This was a standard practice for the Nazca people in all walks of life. They believed in shared cultural practices which were then carried out on an individual basis. There was no interference or influence from a larger political power, such as a king or an emperor. The largest mound, dubbed the Great Temple, measures 98 feet. It is made up of six or seven terraces, built from earth and set on the top of a hill. Inside, it features the usual assortment of tombs, as well as a series of smaller chambers. These chambers were filled with clay panpipes, which implied that music was an important part of the Nazca burial ceremonies. The mummies of men, women, and children have been found at Kawachi, and some of them show signs of ritual sacrifice. These are mummies of Nazca people, not captured enemies, 
whose bodies feature typical signs of Andean burials. According to today's standards, these burial practices can seem a little brutal. Even though the Nazca revered their dead, they often mutilated the bodies and severed the head. For an example, the Nazca did not always bury bodies whole. Several partial burials have been found where the body is dismembered and the body parts are individually wrapped and placed into the grave separately, such as the head, which if that is missing completely, then it's been replaced with the head jar. Sometimes they find arms wrapped up and on other occasions, which is quite often, they find the genitalias wrapped completely up, almost made into a trophy of sorts. Panpipes? No, not panpipes, <laughs> but close. So, like we previously mentioned, the Nazca are known for, you know, their trophy heads. Many of these have been found at Kawachi. There are severed heads which had their skulls pierced, tongues removed, placed in a pouch, excrement put in the mouth, and eyes and lips sealed with the spines of a cactus. So they get shit put in their mouth, and then their mouth's sealed up. Yeah. Why? You talking that shit, you gonna eat it when you die, bitch. That's the only thing that came to mind was that this guy was a shit talker. Man, that is a very detailed one right there that we have an image of, and it is gross. Now, like you asked about the red hair, do you think they, like, put clay all over them? Absolutely, to protect them from the sun. They're out in the desert, cover their skin in clay. True. Keeps them warm, keeps them uh, from getting sunburnt, which I'm sure they don't have to worry about that, but yeah. Eventually, Kawachi was abandoned around the mid-6th century. Even though archaeologists have been excavating Kawachi since 1926, no written records have been found at the site, leaving historians to guess as to why the site was abandoned. And there's another photograph of each individual tomb, and you can see the mummies just sitting upright, and it's kind of scary. So there you go. That's Kawachi, and I hope everyone enjoyed that. It did. All right, so let's get into our last strange fact and finding which is about the Lady of the Lines. Now, before we get into that, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, welcome back. All right, so let's get into our last strange fact and finding, which is about the Lady of the Lines, a.k.a. Maria Rijka. So Maria was a German-born Peruvian mathematician, archaeologist, and translator. She played an important role in studying the Nazca Lines. In 1932, she moved to Peru to work as governess for the children of the German council in Cusco. In 1934, Maria was hiking in the Andes Mountains when she accidentally stabbed herself with a cactus needle. The injury wasn't so bad itself, but leaving it untreated, it became severely infected, which led to Maria having part of her finger being amputated. Despite that, she continued her work in Peru and eventually worked under Paul Kosak, who was an American historian in 1941. She would work as Paul's assistant while he was in Peru studying strange drawings on the floor of the Nazca Pampa. They would fly over the Nazca line studying them, observing the geometric and animal figures. Paul soon realized that these lines were not deep enough to have served as irrigation systems, which was the main object of his research there. Even though they realized that, Paul and Maria would continue to study the Nazca lines till 1949, when Paul decided to leave Peru. This didn't stop Maria from continuing her own research on the Nazca lines, which would become the purpose of her life. So we have an image here for y'all. It is of Maria and Paul together in 1939, where they're holding a, yeah, like a land surveying tool. 
in the middle of the Nazca Pampas, which is very barren. That's a flat-ass desert. So Maria ended up living in the Nazca Pampas as the conservator and the guardian of the lines. She would clear away any reddened pebbles to reveal the lighter substrate of clay and lime. Maria protected the lines not just from the effects of the weather, but from intruders or tourists that would drive through on the Pan American Highway. Now she did this for many years, and her hard work was not in vain, because she finally succeeded in getting the Peruvian government to restrict access to the area and to build an observation tower beside the road for people to view the lines without ruining them. Because of this, she was deemed the Lady of the Lines. Now, through her studies of the lines, though, Maria and Paul did observe some of the lines converge towards the sunrise on the winter solstice of the Southern Hemisphere. And as time went on, she did find another alignment, but this time it was with the summer solstice. She then proposed that some figures correspond to the shapes of constellations. Following these observations, Maria proposed that the geoglyph served as an astronomical calendar. She kept protecting the lines all the way to her passing in 1998. She was so fond of protecting them, Maria would fend off intruders even while in her wheelchair at 95 years old. Damn. We're not sure about the factualness about the wheelchair, but it did sound badass. Yeah. I read it on two sites, but I never saw any pictures of her in a wheelchair, so I was questionable, but... I think I just said factualness. Factuality? Fact? Factualness? I gave it a pass as a real word. Okay, thank you. I thought it was a real word. All right, so we do have a photograph of Maria, another one, but this one is of her sitting in a lawn chair, just kind of overlooking one of the geoglyphs. She's just looking at it. She's like, damn, look at that. Railing lines while observing lines. Damn. Now, we did find a short story from a guy that worked at the Maria Rica Museum, and it goes like this. She had lost a finger on her first trip to Cusco an infection that left her with only nine fingers. When she discovers the figure of a monkey in 1952, who also has only nine fingers, she finds the coincidence disturbing. Hold on, wait, wait. Figure as in one of the line drawings? One of the geoglyphs. Okay, is a monkey with nine fingers? Correct. Okay. Then she discovers the shapes of the frog and the lizard, which also lack a finger. It is a shock that upsets her and puts her in a state of trance. Maria gradually remembers having been a princess of the Nazca culture in a previous life. This revelation makes her understand that she will never be able to leave Peru. She is destined to die there. So since she lost her finger and the other geoglyphs only had nine fingers, that was kind of like a sign to her? Why she, I guess she was so drawn to protecting them. Okay, I can believe that. Maybe in a past life, you know? Yeah. She was the one that drew them. She worked her ass off. She's like, I'm going to protect my shit. Good on her. Good on her for preserving all that stuff. Yeah. So there you go. That's a little bit about Maria Rika, a.k.a. Lady of the Lines. So that right there is our last strange fact and finding. Now we're going to move over into the juicy part of the episode, which is our theory section. Now, before we get into that, we are going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Do you follow automotive news or do you just like cars and want to see what the heck's going on? Well, then you might like Donut Media's new podcast, The Big Three. Hi, I'm James Pumphrey. And every week, me and my co-host slash two of my top five friends, Nolan Sykes and Joe Weber, unpack the latest and greatest in automotive news and trends on The Big Three. You'll also get a lot of laughs, hot takes, and personal insight on cars from the biggest car guys in automotive media. So, whether you're a hardcore enthusiast or just a person who goes up, that's a good looking car. <laughs> Check out The Big Three, available wherever you get your podcasts, or you can watch the full videos at Donut Podcasts on YouTube. All right, welcome back. Now we're going to move over into the juicy part of the episode, which is our theory section. So, Aaron, you going to start that off for us? 
So the first theory that we're going to talk about today is called astronomical calendar. So this theory is that these lines, aka geoglyphs, were a part of a astronomical calendar. Now, many ancient civilizations built monuments which combined astrological features with their religious cosmology and practices. Take, for example, Stonehenge, which we did an episode over a few months ago. The way the stones at Stonehenge line up with the sunrise and the summer solstice, it's those alignments that a lot of people say, hey, this is what makes the geoglyphs some astronomical calendar that the Nazca people used. You know, so a lot of people propose that the Nazca lines recorded the position of the sun or planets during solstices, or that they might have been maps of constellations. Now, none of this has been proven just yet. Now, with that being said, there are some weird facts that kind of give this theory some credibility. For an example, Maria, the lady of the lines that we spoke about earlier, she associated the line with an astronomical calendar as well, stating that some of the animals were modeled after grouping of stars in the night sky. She also associated the enormous figure of the monkey with the Big Dipper constellation by uncovering lines connected to the figure that indicates the position of this constellation's largest star. Now, it is worth noting that when Maria proposed this theory, it hadn't been shut down yet, but in 1967, American astrophysicist Gerard Hawkins came along and he was like, yo, Maria's wrong. She's a dumbass. There's no correlation between the changes of celestial bodies and the design of the Nazca lines. And that right there is what kind of put the scientific stamp down on this not being associated with the constellations or any of that stuff. So that right there is our first theory. I mean, it is kind of interesting that they line up with the constellations. Now, just saying like it lines up with the sun or rising sun of the summer solstice or winter solstice like eh but when it starts to get into the constellations very interesting though it is but yeah i mean it could be that but then again it could be our next theory that we have which is water supply so some scholars believe that the nazca lines were used by the people to mark underground water supplies research into the geography of the area has shown that geoglyphs follow the aquifer from which the nazca aqueducts collected their water from in addition to that, they believe the lines could also indicate a scheme of crop irrigation and water flow. So the geoglyphs mark the location of these aquifers under, that are underground. So I guess like underground rivers, you could say. But why do they look like animals? Did you just want them to draw fucking arrows? I, I don't know, man. That's, I like the constellation one better than the marking of water. I like that one better as well. After hearing that, I definitely agree with the water supply theory. However, I don't necessarily agree that the lines were a type of irrigation system. And that kind of takes us into this next theory, which is called deities. Some people propose that these geoglyphs were religious interpretations of deities living in the sky or that the deities were their source of water. They sought the deities' assistance in the production of healthy crops. Like the monkey geoglyph, they believe that one may have represented a jungle environment in which water is plentiful, thus encouraging rain to fall in the dry-ass desert. The Nazca Palpa project suggests that the Nazca line's purpose was related to water, which was a valuable commodity in this hellscape of terrain. The geoglyphs weren't used as an irrigation system or a guide to find water, but rather as a ritual to the gods, an effort to bring much-needed rain. Some scholars point to the animal depictions for evidence of this theory. Some of these depictions are symbols of rain, water, or fertility, and have been found on pottery and other ancient Peruvian sites. I agree. A lot of their sacrificial rituals was towards their gods. So what other rituals are they going to do to kind of help increase the rainfall? You know, they're thinking, hey, chopping off people's heads, that ain't working as, as good as we hope. How about let's draw some big-ass spiders in the ground? Or monkeys. Yeah, they like monkeys. They're like, they don't like monkeys. Let's try something else. And they just keep drawing different things. I can see that. Whatever works sticks. Yeah. Well, you got that one guy in the background. But can we still keep cutting heads off? It might work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could definitely see that. Because like you were saying, for the water supply, why would you just mark it with a big-ass animal? But if you did it for like, you know, ritual purposes, like, hey, drawing this on this supposed water source here, maybe the gods will like it and 
Let's do something with it. Yeah, the gods didn't like that monkey with nine fingers. Let's try a astronaut man. Let's try a, a hummingbird that looks like a comb. That's what I like to envision my Nazca people as. I still liked the Squidward. So let's get into our next theory, which is that the Nazca people, they did not create the geoglyphs. So some people have argued that the Nazca lines could not have been created without the ability to see the ground from overhead. Now, even standing on the tallest hill nearby, you cannot see the geoglyph to the fullest. Some say that would mean that the Nazca people would have had to come up with a primitive hot air balloon in order to get a sky view to build these lines as they did. Now, this is ruled out because of the lack of physical evidence of any inventions such as like a hot air balloon. None of that shit existed back then, okay? They weren't flying up in the air. That did not happen. So that leads us to the question, if they didn't make them, who did? Some aliens come down and draw some lines in the ground? Oh, no, because... I don't know, they noticed lines on the ground, but then they didn't really know or really could tell what it was until they got an airplane and looked down on it to actually see the full... Who's they? Paul Kosak and... Oh, Maria. Yeah. They weren't able to see, like, the full image of these geoglyphs from down below. They had to get up high to actually see the full thing. And even on the highest hill, you can't even see the full thing. So I guess it's questioning their skill from just being on the ground and not being able to see their work completely, I guess. Would either one of y'all be able to create lines like this? If I said, hey, let's go draw a hummingbird that's three miles by three miles. Do it by carving into the ground. Could you do it? I couldn't. I'll tell you right now, no way There's in hell. There's no way. It, that's pretty much asking you to put a blindfold on and make, like, draw something in front of you. That's what blows my mind about the whole thing is they don't even know what they're putting together. Like They can't see it. So how do they know if they're doing it correctly? And then you look at the final product and it's... The proportions are perfect. Right. It makes it hard to believe that they were the ones that created these lines. By themselves. By themselves. Unless they had help from somebody, which we don't know, really. I think sometimes, as modernized people, we don't give those people, in the, like the people of the past, enough credit. They had a lot of time on their hands. They didn't have any distractions. They didn't have social media. They're like, what are you going to do today? Well, for the next, like, I don't know, eight seasons, I think I'm going to be just, you know, carving in the ground. I want to make some art. They're like, cool, man. All right, let's think of this. They're over there doing uh, hallucinogens, San Pedro cactus. Were they able to do, like, out-of-body astral projecting, out-of-body experiences? Able to see from above to be like, hey, guys, y'all are doing good. Keep going, keep going straight like that. I don't know, man. I'm trying to think of a spiritual way here. That could definitely help and spur their creative mind. Exactly, yes. I mean, why would they create like a guy that looks like an astronaut back then anyways? Hmm. Makes you wonder. Speaking of wondering, what's this next theory about? All right. So this next theory called communication. The Nazca Desert is very dry and the lines would have been visible from miles around. The way they were built, they didn't have to worry about it eroding away. You know, there was not a lot of rain to wash it away. So many believe that this was actually a form of communication to send messages between different villages or groups. How the hell did other villages or groups see this? They don't got hot air balloons. They're not Willy Wonka flying up in their elevators. Hey, I see they're making lines over there. I don't know what they're saying, but they're talking to us. Oh, God dang. It's a freaking monkey with nine fingers. That means, let's see, one, two. We got to sacrifice nine people and we got to eat a monkey. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, that, I do not believe this one at all. I'm sorry. Now that you say that, I don't know if it's in, like in Peru, but aren't like monkey brains a delicacy somewhere? I have no idea. You're asking the wrong person. I mean, I know guinea pigs were, supposedly. And llamas and dogs. Hell, if monkeys were there, I'm pretty sure they ate them. I don't even know. I'm going to sound like a dumbass. I don't know anything about Peru, so. Well, I mean, the Nazca people, they ate dogs, guinea pigs, llamas, so. Well, pretty sure they don't eat them now. But You should put some Dale seasoning on that bad boy and it'll eat. You smoked that some bitch, huh? Anyways, so yeah, that was that theory. What's this next one? Hopefully it's better than the communication one. Well, don't get your hopes up, because it's not. <laughs> this next theory is called Watermark. As the name goes, it actually has nothing to do with water itself. This was a way of showing ownership of the land, instead of having skulls on poles surrounding the land or signs. They pretty much put a big old watermark on the land so it can be seen from miles away. 
That way, anyone that crosses into the Nazca territory had no excuse of saying, Oh, I didn't know. I didn't see anything. I, I don't know where I'm at. Where, huh? That's too much work to be like, this is our land. Don't come across it. Just throw, throw some skulls or some decapitated heads on a thing. Be like, hey, don't cross. That's what I would do. It would be more intimidating, too, because if you walk up and you say, whoa, there's a skull on a pole. I'm not going into that area. I mean, it worked on the forest. Now, this next theory we kind of already talked about. It's called land art. And this theory is just that, you know, like all the pottery and drawings that the Nazca people created. It kind of goes along with it. The lines do that, uh, you know, we're creating pottery and all this artwork. Why not just create it on the land itself as well? So all these symbols is just their way of showing their inner artiste. I don't I don't believe this. I guess my thing on this, I, I don't necessarily think they did it specifically for the purpose of just making land art, but I think they kind of took what they were good at, arts and making the pottery and stuff, and then kind of intertwined that with their reverence of a higher deity. Like that was just their way of explaining and expressing themselves. Yeah, I can see that. This next theory is my favorite. All right, so our next theory is called space. Some say that these Nazca people created these lines not for themselves, but for other beings in space or from space. This theory is that a long time ago, aliens landed in Peru and interacted with the Nazca people. These extraterrestrial beings then quickly left. However, they made a profound impact on the people. The Nazca people then started drawing figures into the ground that were miles long so that the aliens in the sky could see these images and visit them again. Now, what makes this theory so interesting is that the lines in Nazca are not the only landscape figures in South America. So around 850 miles south of there, there's a large human figure carved into the side of a mountain. This carving is called the Giant of Atacama. Now, this carving is around 393 feet long and is surrounded by lines that are similar to the ones that are seen at Nazca. Also, in that area of the Atacama Desert, in 2003, an individual found a strange six-inch petrified skeleton that was nicknamed the Atacama Alien. And we did do an episode over that Atacama Alien, the figure that was found, the carving, as well as other little miniature aliens that have been found all over the world. It's a great episode. It was. That little, little six-inch petrified skeleton was kind of weird looking. Yep. I'm still stuck on how were they able to create these lines. Once we figure out how and solidify that, then we move to why. I think we can't question why before we answer how. And this last theory does just that. So our last theory is not why the Nazca people created these lines, but how they created them. And by the way, this is the most common belief theory in the scientific community as to how the Nazca people created them. So the Nazca lines are located in the desert plains of the Rio Grande de Nazca River Basin an archaeological site that spans more than 290 square miles and is one of the driest places on Earth. It is said that this area only gets around 20 minutes of rainfall per year. The desert floor is covered in a layer of iron dioxide-coated pebbles that have a deep rusted color to them. The ancient peoples created their designs by removing the top 12 to 15 inches of rock, which revealed the lighter colored sand below. The most likely construction method involves putting stakes in the ground, tying a rope between them, and scraping the dirt off along the rope. This would explain the geometric shapes of many of the lines, as well as how the Nazca would have kept the measurements for the drawings in ratio to each other by simply multiplying the measurements of a drawing into rope lengths. Wooden stakes found in the ground at the end of some of the lines support this theory of creation. They likely began with small-scale models and carefully increased the model's proportions to create the large designs we can see from the sky today. Most of the known geoglyphs were formed by, like Caleb said, removing rocks from only the outer border of the figures, while others were formed by removing rocks from the interior. Now, because of the low amount of rain, wind, and erosion in the desert, the geoglyphs have remained largely unbothered throughout the centuries, which is why we can still see them today. And we do have an illustration of these Nazca people, I guess, 
uh, creating these lines. I can see that. I can see them starting with smaller scales and then working their way up. That's really the only way I can see it even being possible. Blueprints. Exactly. So that's the how. I think that's a, a solid how they did it. But now it kind of goes into our own personal thoughts and theories. If you believe that they are the ones who created it, and that is how they created it, the main mystery is why were they created? Dan, first of all, do you believe they created these geoglyphs? I do. Why did they create them then? I'm just thinking about it, thinking about all the theories and the facts that we just went over. I mean, the fact that they did so many ritual sacrifices and such, they were wishing for rain. So appeasing their gods, deities, was like one of their main things to do. So the only thing I can really see why they would do it is to appease their deities. Do whatever they can to get more water than five milliliters a year, 20 minutes per year. That's, that's not shit. Not at all. What about you, Caleb? So I'm in complete agreement with Dan right here. I think that they did indeed build them. Um, and I think the reasoning for that is for rainfall. I think they were trying to honor the higher deities and give thanks for the rainfall that they have already received. You know what? I try to have a different thinking when it comes to things. But if you think about it, these people were in a desert. They got very little rainfall. What are you going to be thinking about all day? Water. That's all I would think about in a desert. So if you have this religious belief of deities and they grant certain things for you that you need, and if chopping off heads ain't doing it, well, by God, we're going to start making carvings in the ground, big ones, so that these deities in the sky can see them and say, oh, look at my people. They are giving me great things to look at. I'm going to make it rain on their ass. Let's imagine all collectively, listeners too, let's just all take a big hit of DMT together and start tripping our nuts because that's kind of where this thought is, right? You have to get outside of your mind. Going back to the theory of if an alien civilization left those marks, what if that alien civilization brought to that community all of their artistic abilities, the ability to make pottery, the ability to make all these textiles and stuff like that? And then the aliens leave that mark to say, okay, this is what we have given them. We have given them art. And then you go over to Egypt, say they gave us the pyramids. They gave us geometry. They gave us mathematics. So whatever they give us is relative to the subject that we've received. That one's out there, but... No, I, I like that one. I don't think it's that far out there. I like it. I have a question. Okay. How far is the Nazca Valley from, say, the rainforest? Because this is where my thought is going, trying to bounce off of that. What if, say, it could be their deities or aliens, they actually made these geoglyphs and that the Nazca people were supposed to follow these images. They drew a monkey, lizard, hummingbird, uh, spiders. These are all animals and stuff that you would probably find in the rainforest. So maybe they were trying to hint like, this is where you need to go. If you want water, this is where you go. Look for these animals. 260 kilometers. Now that's a road that's just not a straight line, but from Nazca to the closest forest. So maybe whoever, somebody, some being, some entity was trying to guide these people to the rainforest where there is actually a shit ton of water. Like, hey, dumbasses, come over here. Quit just chilling and eating our dogs that escape. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, uh, do either one of y'all have anything else you want to add to this episode today? Do y'all want to go make a geoglyph? We just go out and three miles long, just carve something? Absolutely not. I have no interest in that whatsoever, but I can guarantee you if you find an accurate way to do it, that's how people are making crop circles. Mm, kind of. I can see that. Yeah. There was an episode on how they were making crop circles. They just used rope and a piece of board and they were just going around stepping on it. But in the rocks, though, it'd be different. You have to, like, move stuff around. Too much work. I'm good. We'll go borrow a tractor, steal one. Does a bunch on the road down here anyways. You can ask your brother. Didn't he take one one time? Yeah, he tried to. Well, I'll ask him, see if he'll go do it again. All right, well, if you are a loved one, have made these geoglyphs or have seen them in person, send us an email. We'd love to talk to you. Hell yeah. 
With that being said, that is the end of our episode over the Nazca lines. We hope you all enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I had fun looking it up. I did too. And be sure to go to the History Channel and pay $2 to watch Aaron. Or if you don't, subscribe to our Patreon instead. Yeah. You can go to our Patreon and spend two more dollars, which would equal five. And then you get 169 extra Patreon episodes to listen to, which mean all the episodes are over an hour long. So you have a lot to listen to. This is true. So with that being said, I want to thank you for joining us today. And again, thank you for your support. You are all amazing, every single one of you. So with that being said, Dan and Caleb, you want to roll us out? Sure will. It's okay to be out of this world with your thoughts. Because you are not alone. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>